<laughs> thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you for coming. Um, if my friend and you've got no idea why you're here. Uh, this is London is Drinking. It's the third and final for this year, hopefully, uh, event run at Conway Hall with Londonist uh, website. Uh, all about London. We don't just do drinking stuff. We do politics and things to go out, uh, things to do, and um, a lot of nerd stuff as well. I'm Rachel Holdsworth. I'm one of the senior editors and amateur beer enthusiast, and not important compared to these guys, <laughs> um, who are Pete Brown, a London-based writer who specialises in making people thirsty. Absolutely. He is the author of five and a half books, mm. okay, <laughs> uh, mostly about beer, as well as the annual Cask Report. Richard Barnett is a writer, teacher and broadcaster, mostly on the cultural history of science and medicine, and a poet. Uh, his books include The Daedalus Book of Gin and Medical London, City of Diseases, City of Cures. Both of which are on sale at the back. Yes, there is a shop at the back. Oh, and um, the, the bar is open throughout the evening. We won't be offended much if you kind of wander out and back in again. I will be. I'll be watching. <laughs> and the offended woman is Melissa Cole, who is an author, journalist, broadcaster and sommelier who writes extensively about beer. Her debut book, Let Me Tell You About Beer, has been hailed as the perfect beginner's guide to beer. So probably a good place to start is, what are we all drinking? Well, you, you, you were drinking. <laughs> I was drinking Five Points Pale, which was so nice, we've had to send for another one. Yeah, we may be shouting orders back. I've got <laughs> yeah. the Five Points Porter. You I'm on? on the Five Points Pale as well, which is delicious. Yeah, being my usual awkward self, <laughs> I've, I've gone with uh, the Brew by Numbers Mosaic uh, Session IPA. So we're all on the beer. Um, good question to start off with is, how did we get here? I mean, 2,000 years ago, this was a Roman city. We were drinking, well, we weren't. We were drinking wine. I mean, how, how did we... Let's have a, a quick chat about the, the history of, of pubs, gin, how we got here. Well, we certainly weren't going to be drinking wine anymore. We, we can't, we can't grow uh, yeah. grapes well enough here. Um, I think the, 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 well, the Romans certainly didn't like our versions of beer and mead. That's well documented. So, you know, we, once, we, you know once we chucked them off the island again, <laughs> we went back to doing what we were good at. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Being, being invaded by a southern European um, empire, I think, was the major force. <laughs> they, brought, they brought their taste with them to a great extent. Mm. Gra so grapes did used to grow better here um, mm. than they do now. They were used... Monasteries grew them for use in communion wine and things like that. But then you have that mini ice age around the Elizabethan time. And the world does kind of divide into climates that grow grain mm. better and climates that grow grapes better. And we're now moving back the other way. We're, we're, we're starting to become a, a grape, certainly in Kent and places like that. We're starting mm. to get grapes mm. again. But, but humanity, wherever you go, at any point, anywhere in the world, makes an alcoholic beverage out of whatever is growing locally, which is just... Yeah. This is what we're all about. This is fantastic. <laughs> and and, uh, and yeah. here, grain grows better than, it, than, than, than yeah. grapes. Food, shelter, and intoxication. Yeah. And Absolutely. sex, of course, yeah. as well, but probably intoxication first. We do need to say, be right. Yeah, the, the one you were missing something vital. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've forgotten the name of the guy who wrote it, but the uh, Sacred Herbs and Healing... Um, oh, Stephen Booner. Stephen yeah. Booner. Yeah. He's got something, a brilliant phrase in there, something along the lines of, we are basically in the most boring time ever. <laughs> We don't, we don't, all through history, we've always taken substances which were totally, totally mind-altering um, uh, to a point where actually we don't today because it's all been criminalised mm. or, or, you know... Or I do live that, that, there's, that um, there's that great Bill Hicks quote, 
which one? Uh, there's so many Grateful <laughs> Hicks quotes. Uh, but Bill Hicks talks about uh, anti-drugs people and says, if you're anti-drugs, take all your music, put it in a big pile yeah. and burn yeah. it. Because all those musicians who, who made that music, real fucking high on drugs. Yeah. And, and I feel the same over British history. It's like, if, if you think that boozing is a bad thing, uh, you know, all these great people, you know, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, all these great figures in Jesus, uh, all these, all these, <laughs> well known all, all these great people. Yes, well known. I made a list of, of, of historical famous drinkers, and Queen Elizabeth would drink anybody under the table. in the sake of for the sake of balance, I made a list of famous teetotalers. I got as far as Hitler. And uh, yeah, that was kind of it. He was, also a <laughs> he was also a vegetarian as well, wasn't he? So, you know, no beer, no bacon, boo. And going beyond booze as well, we can add in the fact that Queen Victoria was an enthusiastic consumer of almost any hallucinogen she could get her hands on. I mean, co really? cocaine, mescal, marijuana, all kinds of anesthetics and so on. Yeah, she was, she was, she was, uh, she was a goer, yes. Well, she was a goer, wasn't she? She certainly was a goer. Yeah. We're Is getting off topic here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, can, I, can I add one other thing here? Because, of course, this isn't just a story of, of, of going from wine to beer. This is also the story of the emergence of distilled spirits as well. Um, as a historian of gin, it's my special interest. And this is something that emerges from, from, from alchemy and from medicine. I mean, the, the, the distillation in its modern sense emerges in the, in the Islamic empire. Perhaps rather striking to think of distilled liquor <laughs> being a product of... Um, the great Islamic renaissance of the 7th and 8th centuries. But yeah, it, it's invented as a, as a almost, the, almost the particle accelerator of its day. It's a way of exploring the structure of the universe. Um, natural philosophy of the time argues that there is a sort of um, subtle fluid that animates the universe and animates all life within it. And, and, and alchemists start arguing that you can extract this stuff by distillation. So the first time that people start distilling spirits it's not about getting drunk for pleasure. It's not even necessarily about medicine. It's almost kind of sacramental. It's like we've discovered the essence of the universe here. And alcohol is a very mysterious substance. If you, if you put it into a kind of you know, medieval context, it looks like water, but it burns. It evaporates. It disappears into the air without leaving any trace. In small doses, it'll make you feel great. It'll cheer you up. Perhaps it'll even cure some diseases. But in very large doses, of course, it'll kill you. So this, throughout its history, distilled spirit has been this literally, but also metaphorically, potent substance. And I think that's, that's another part of our story, is how we get to the present. Did you ever find anything about the, the etymology of the word spirit? And, and the similarity, yeah. you know, the kind of double meaning of, you know... Well, there are all sorts of puns here about sort of, you know, gin and... D gin, G-I-N, and gin, D-J-I-N-N. Um, but, yeah, it, it's very striking that certainly... It's a, it's a sort of spirit. A sort of, genie, yes, like, as, as in, um, yeah. as in the, 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 you know, the genie. It's the same root as the genie in the bottle. Um, yeah, Arabic culture, the first culture to encounter alcohol, gives it a name that also means spirit. Um, their word also had, al-hul, I'm pronouncing that very badly, but their word has this double meaning, that it means a kind of essence. It's not just a liquid in a bottle, it's a spirit, it's an essence. It's, uh, it, 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 it's a playful name that reflects the playful qualities of the substance. Oh, you know, it's all a game until somebody gets hurt, isn't it? As, as, is, <laughs> as is the case with everything. And it's all very well making... <laughs> the booze, we have to have somewhere to drink it as well. So, yes. Yes. You've written a magnificent book, by the way, available at the back. At the back. Yeah. Um, but about, called Shakespeare's Local, but a far more, about far more than just the George. Yeah, so I wrote this book about the George Inn in Southwark. If, has, has anyone been to the George Inn? Mm -hmm. sure, surely more than you. Describe it and you'll, you might not know what it is. You must have been to the George. It's the most astonishing pub. In, a, in some ways. Uh, 
because it's it's hidden down a little alleyway in uh, just opposite Borough Market. I was about to say, if you've ever stumbled <coughs> down Borough High Street and then down an alleyway and kind of happened on a black and white pub, that's the one we're talking about. Yeah, the, the gallery, Dickensian coaching in. Judging them by my own <laughs> and, um, and you get people who've worked around the corner from there 20, for 20 years, worked in office or you know gone to the London Bridge Station in and out of town, who have no idea it's there. And then you have people who come from Japan and the United States just, just to see it. And this is one of the very many sort of brilliant sort of paradoxes I love about pubs. And, and yeah, it's been there for, in, in some shape or form, it's been there for about 600 years. Uh, and so I wrote a book about the George to trace the history of pubs, and in particular pubs in London. And that particular pub is noteworthy because it's just near the southern uh, end of uh, London Bridge which until 1750 was the only bridge across the River Thames in London. So if you came from the continent, if you came from southern England, if you came from anywhere kind of south, when you come to London to seek your fortune, you had to go across London Bridge or, or do a deal with one of the watermen who, who did boats across. And, and so there's this massive bottleneck at the southern end of, of London Bridge, which is why Borough Market's there, and uh, because people bring their produce up, get tired of waiting to get across the bridge, and then... So sod it, I'm just going to sell it here. <laughs> and, um, and, and this huge long row of, of, of gallery coaching inns were there. And um, when you think about what that pub has seen mm. over, over the centuries, that the people who have been past it, the people who have been in it, you know, uh, Clement Attlee spent the Blitz drinking in there. <laughs> um, Churchill went there, Princess Margaret went there for a lock-in in 1962, um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor went there, Beyonce's been there more recently, um, and because it's like, well, you come to town, what is it to do, what is it to see? Well, here's this pub that all these people have been, okay, let's go there and see that. And so the legend just keeps building and building and building. And um, gin, the history of, of, of gin, we are very, very, the city's very tied up with gin. Oh, absolutely, this is, this is the best place in the world to talk about gin. Just before, I, 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 speaking of spirits and their playful potential, I, I, I understand that George has a rather good ghost as well. It absolutely hates technology from what yes. I hear. Well, Miss Murray, who yes. ran the George from the 1870s until 1934, uh, she put in, I think she put in running water, but mm. she didn't want mm. it to do with electricity or mobile phones or anything like that. <coughs> and apparently every time, every time they put new tills in or anything like that, yeah. they always screw up. And uh, <laughs> apparently this is the ghost of Miss Murray. That's uh, a very, being very, playful. A very, very pleasing thought. Um, but no, gin. Um, I suppose when we think about gin in London, we think about the gin craze, this, this, this episode of consumption in the sort of the first, well, second quarter of the 18th century. But in many ways, the history of gin goes back even further than that. I suppose it really, um, in some ways, it starts with the dissolution of the monasteries, as so many things do. Up to this point, the, the technology, the knowledge of how to distill had really been something that monks and nuns possessed and, and, and knew about. So... Um, production of distilled spirits was really something that was, that, was, that was done in that monastic religious context. But after the dissolution, this idea, this technology kind of goes wild. It falls into the hands of people and people realise that drinking spirits is, is enormously fun. It's something to be done for, for, for pleasure and for profit. I think the start of English taste for spirit really sort of comes in about 1660 with the restoration. Charles II comes back to the throne. He's been in exile in Europe for 12 years, he's picked up European tastes, which in this period means things like brandy and gin. Gin at this point, Geneva, as it's known, is the Dutch, somebody's mobile's going, oh. isn't it? <laughs> Geneva at this point is the kind of Dutch national spirit. So when um, William of Orange comes to the throne, 1688, 
a way to show your loyalty to the new king is to drink a toast in Geneva. It's a way of kind of acknowledging um, the, the authority of the monarch. But there's also the, the, the spark that really lights the gin craze is, is a piece of kind of royal real politique. When William comes to the throne, he's, he's just seen his predecessor um, getting deposed by the leading aristocrats of the land. And he realizes they, they will do the same to him if he doesn't keep them very happy. So he realizes that the way to keep them happy is to keep grain prices high. These are aristocrats who have huge estates, they're, they're let out to farmers. So if you keep grain prices high, you'll keep them wealthy and you'll keep them happy and William will keep his throne. So in 1690, he passes a piece of legislation basically deregulating distillation. This is why you get the gin craze in London and not in Amsterdam, Paris, Genoa, or wherever else it might be. You have a new consumer culture taking place in London. Um, you have remarkable urban poverty, really, for the first time. But the thing that really sparks it off is, is, is William's desire to keep his throne and his, his deregulation of distillation. So we've had a gin craze back then. Is it going a bit far now to say we've got sort of another sort of like a, another craze for alcohol, craft beer craze, artisan <laughs> gin craze? Because <laughs> some, something big has happened in the last, what, 10, 15 years? Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Well, some of the, that, again, is down to legislation. Um, so the introduction of progressive beer duty was a huge movement on, in, in terms of allowing smaller brewers to open up and actually compete um, because they were getting charged less duty per barrel, and that still stays in place now. Um, the other thing as well that you've had actually is you've had a knock-on effect from over the pond, uh, from the US and the, and the way that the craft brewing movement has grown up over there, and the fact that sort of for the last 35, 30, 35 years, they've really sort of been gaining ground and gaining popularity, so you've had kind of a push-me-pull-you effect where they've been echoing our beer styles, taking them, making their own, using ingredients that have their own individual terroir, um, which you know is reflected because of their climate, their hops are more aggressive and more bitter and more aromatic, um, and in the same way, same way that the uh, New World grapes are. So you've had a couple of different things that have happened there, but mostly, again, it's down to taxation. Mm. It, it, the minute the minute the taxation is is favourable towards an industry, then an industry will flourish. And then, of course, eventually, obviously, the government will tax the shit out of it again. And it'll probably go downhill a little yeah, bit again because, yeah. you know, they always need a cash cow. Currently, they're just selling off the <laughs> NHS, but I'm sure they'll need something else soon. Um, so, it says here in my notes uh, that we've, we've currently got 80 London breweries. Like Depends what you count, but it's, mm. yeah. yeah, it's about there, isn't it? Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was... Breweries or brands, I think we can probably say. Yeah. I remember the, low, the, the, the point when when Young's closed in Wandsworth in 2006. And I was in Boulder, Colorado uh, on the day Young's closed uh, on a tour of Boulder's breweries. And Boulder has a population of 100,000 people uh, and it had 15 breweries. Uh, and I read the news about Young's closing. It's like London is a city of 8 million people and it has two breweries. And that was just kind of, what the fuck is going on there? And... You know, craft beer was, was, was a good national movement at that point. It was starting to pick up speed. You got, it, it was, well, it was, I guess it was about a year before Brewdog were opening, but Thornbridge were already there, Dark Star, people like that. And, um, 
And London was just about the last place in the country to get craft beer. This is the big craft beer myth. Mm. As soon as London got craft beer, London invented craft beer. <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> you know, cra craft beer was in Derby, Sorry, Sheffield. Was, I'm sure that was, you know, somewhere in Scotland that it's invented yeah, craft beer. Yeah, I mean, there was kind of, it was kind of a big thing in Aberdeen long before there was a craft brewery yeah, in totally. any craft brewery in yeah, London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, despite um, one, despite one, of the the founder, one of the founders worked at Thornbridge, right? Yeah, which is not in the official biography, funnily enough. <laughs> but, um, but once London got finally got craft beer, it, was, it wasn't the genie out of the bottle. It, it just went whoosh. And, you know, London does not like to be behind the curve. Mm. It really hates being behind the curve. So it's like from two craft breweries, sorry, from two breweries to 80 in five years, and London's like, there you go. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Take that, bitches. Derby, Sheffield, Norwich, beer cities, fuck that. London. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that, that's what I love about this city. That's, that's part of the reason I, 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 I've lived here for 25 years. It's yeah. just that London will not stand by and mm. just let mm. things happen. Mm. It's mm. like, no. I, I've just spotted this craft beer trend. Right, I've invented it. I, th and I think it's actually, in, in fairness, I mean, I think it's a real uh, reflection of the creativity of the people who have opened up in London, however, because actually the odds are really stacked against you. It's incredibly expensive. Mm. Um, you know, you do, you do have a very fickle population. You have a population that will just go, oh, you're amazing one week, and then just go, oh, mm. God, my God, I'm so over that, the next. You know, it's like, you know, oh, did the national papers write about it? <laughs> you know, open, think... a, open a pret in Shoreditch. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it, I think it's a real, I think it's a testament, actually, in a, in a, to a lot of the London breweries. I'm not saying that, that London is the centre of UK brewing in any way, shape, or form. You know, I think there's, I think it's got some of the, some of the best breweries and you know, some of the top ten breweries in the country. But I wouldn't say that by any means it's in sole possession of them all. Yeah. Um, but I think you know that the the, the the you know things you fight against in London, um, you know, finding a free house pub. I mean, that is basically hen's teeth. Um, yeah, so I think it's you know it's really really important that we you know also whilst I completely you know agree with you mm. about the fact that you know London doesn't like anybody else to be doing it better because you know we're London, um, but there I think there is that that important okay. bit that actually the, the odds are seriously stacked against you and certainly with all the competition as well. And do you think craft beer is in general has it been a force for good? Totally, totally. Yeah. You're talking. We've got two of us on the, on this panel. Try to make a living out of writing about me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a force for bank account. <laughs> a, it's, it, this doesn't quite work, but I, I often no. try to paraphrase uh, that Bob Monkhouse thing where he said uh, they used to laugh when I said I wanted to be a comedian. They're not laughing now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but un, until about until about 2010, when I when someone asked me what I did for a living and I said I write about beer, I got laughed at. Yes. You know, it was like you know, what do you really do? I was like, I write about beer. Well, I, bet, I bet, however, you've n you've never been told that's a strange job for a bloke, or have you ever been asked just out of interest? So I'd be really. I don't think I've ever asked you this question. Have you ever been asked, do you actually like beer? No. You haven't, have you? No. I shit you not. They are the two most common questions I get. My, my most common answer is that this would be a fucking awful job if I didn't like beer. <laughs> And yes, it's an unusual job for a woman. Yes, mm. yes, it is. Can I tell you about the history so I, I of women that in a very, brewing? We answer that in a very selfish way. Craft is <laughs> fantastic for us because yeah. we've got jobs. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I guess also in fairness, P, and I think it's one of those things. You know, it's not it's not a cool thing to talk about. Um, but you know, we've grafted through some pretty shit times. It used to be it used to be really 
you know, beer used to be seen as inferior. Uh, yeah. Beer is Britain's national drink. It's the biggest drink in the country still. And, and, and you know, you, you, we've both slogged in the trenches trying to do things like beer and, uh, beer and food matching. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but it's just beer, isn't it? Yeah. It's just beer. And people are actually now taking beer seriously, which is, just. Which is fantastic. I don't think we should get too overexcited yet. <laughs> you know, it's, it's still perceived as very inferior in terms of its in terms of its place, particularly on you know on, on tables and things like that. And people and the other the other problem you've got, of course, is that restaurants can't hide. Uh, they can't price it the way that they do wines, for yes. example, because you know you go to you go to a restaurant. In, in well, all honesty, are there any very serious wine nerds? in the audience who can honestly say that they go to a restaurant and know the cost price of every wine on the list. No. You probably do, I'm guessing a lot of you could do it with beer, though. You go, you go into restaurants and you, and you look at... There's, there's one particular restaurant in Bermondsey which always astonishes me. It's uh, charging £6.50 for a 3.30 bottle of Colonel Table beer, which is, what, 3.5%? I happen to know the guys from Colonel have a tendency just to take a trolley and walk, well, when they're, when they're at their old site, they just take a trolley and walk it up the road. So you're not even taking costs. It's like, oh, come on, guys. That's a very large GP. <laughs> and, you know, you get these guys going, well, you know, but we've got to make our margins. So, oh, God. So, you know, it, it's, not, it's not quite there yet. But it's also, you know, they can't do the smoke and the mirrors with it either. Mm. But they will sell a lot more of it if they don't charge £6.50 for it. Mm. I was talking about craft beer revival has got an artisan gin boom we do we do i mean i think the roots of this go back to probably 1988 with the um the start of bombay sapphire that was really the first gin that was invented as a brand right from the ground up in the way that a, you know, a perfume or something like that would be and it's also in that year that um bright lights big city the the, the film adaptation of uh, jay mcinerney's novel came out and that was really the start of the kind of rehabilitation of the cocktail i think for about 20 years before that cocktails had been deeply unfashionable the baby boomer generation didn't drink them. They had other stimulants that they preferred. Oh, hang on a minute. Oh, you can't beat a good Long Island iced tea. Um, <laughs> there was a whole bar dedicated to it. Where was in that? Soho. Jesus, really? Yeah, yeah, I, would still, I would still say as a general principle, the cocktail went out of fashion in the, in the, in the <laughs> 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, but you have, you have Bombay Sapphire, you have, um, you have this film, and you have that rather strange movement in the early 90s, that kind of yin to grunge's yang, which was um, Cocktail Nation. Um, this sort of slightly ironic rehabilitation of the, of the cocktail. And I think it's very striking with gin that we, it, it feels to me like we've been following the US in this. I don't know about the craft beer movement, you two can speak oh, far more oh, so eloquently, yeah. but this is certainly something that has, that has come over from Brooklyn, has come over from the East Coast, and that we've, we've sort of taken up. We're clearly looking in that direction for the inspiration here. But so, so this is the case with craft beer, it's, it's, a, it's a US yeah. trend. Yeah. Oh, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that we're using that phrase, craft beer, because mm. that has come mm. over from the US. I mean, it's a, it's a phrase that, that makes us all slightly uncomfortable, I think, because it's a, it's a very defined phrase in the US, but... We've never really had that that sort of that direct cut-off point that prohibition gave mm. us, and we've always mm. had these fabulous family brewers mm. like Fuller's and St. Austell and Batemans and you know all these and Hook Norton, all these guys who are doing fantastic stuff in really fun, brilliantly traditional ways, but also reinventing themselves as well. Um, you know, you look at Fuller's Frontier, uh, and you look at the way that St. Austell's gone with Korev, and they're now launching a you know a draft, a much more uh, intricate draft stout, and getting a little bit behind it all but still staying true to their roots. Whereas in, in, in the US, you basically had prohibition, 
and then the only people who were able to jump straight back into the pond were the big guys who were able to diversify mm. their businesses. So, and the Brewers Association sort of grew out of that, and they've created this definition which is based on ownership and um, size, which keeps on shifting a little bit to include it, Sam it Adams. <laughs> It changes to exclude the people they don't like. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we just changed the membership rules. You're not allowed in. It's, it's, well, it's, it's more, I think mostly it's actually, it's re, in reality, it's the, the big changes are all around sort of size. Um, the ownership thing was always kind of one of those unwritten things that they had down, but they had to codify it eventually. Well, if we're talking about definitions. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it all just real ale? And isn't all gin just gin? <laughs> Um, if there's a camera don't person in the, in, the, in, the, in the audience, please don't throw anything at us. Um, no, because real ale is a, is a defined thing. Mm. You know, real ale is, is, you know, it's unfiltered, it's unpasteurised, it goes through a secondary fermentation, whether that is in the barrel, whether it's in the bottle. Um, and it is a defined thing, and it is a defined by a body, the campaign for real ale. Um, craft beer, however, is significantly more ephemeral. You've got uh, United Craft Brewers, um, who uh, want to define it. They've supposed to have been doing that for a few months now. Uh, I, don't think I've, I haven't missed a, no, an announcement, have I? No. Anybody? I've not missed an announcement? <laughs> I'm aware. Okay, good. Sorry, I've been travelling an awful lot and I've got quite a backlog of emails. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they want to define it. They want to define craft beer. But I'm immediately a little bit jumpy about this because they want to include straightaway distributor, mm. which brings such a... I mean, look, don't get me wrong, beer is business, and making money is not a fucking crime. But, um, you know, it, it, it makes me jumpy immediately that you've included a distributor, albeit one that I actually have a lot of time for. But that means that I've got the time for people who are running it now. I don't know who the next generation's going to be or the next generation, and it feels like it's built a little bit on, on sandy foundations as a result. I did uh, struggle for a long time with definitions of craft beer, and then I realised I, I didn't need one. Um, yeah. and, and I think definitions are, are, are a curious thing because we, we don't need to define much. And some people have seen, I, I've, I've said this at a few beer industry events, um, I, I have a PowerPoint slide where I put up a picture of uh, a donkey and a picture of a giraffe. Now, they're both mammals. Uh, they're both four-legged mammals. I, I got a B at biology O level and that was it. I've, I've forgotten everything else. There's this whole kind of strata like phylum and species and family and that kind of thing. I have no idea where giraffe and donkey separate. I have no idea which, which bit they're the same and yeah. which bit makes them different. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what the definition of a donkey is and I have no idea what the definition of a giraffe is but I can tell them apart and I can recognise one when I see one. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of my approach to craft beer. So, yeah. so what is, do you, you say you can recognise when you say that, what, what, what would you say is real ale and what's craft? Well, I think real ale and craft overlap. I, I, I said the two circles that overlap, they're about 65%. Um, as Melissa said, uh, real ale is, actually, I mean, the thing is, most people who drink real ale don't know this about real ale. Um, it, it's about what happens in the cellar. It's about the fact mm. that it's got live yeast and a secondary fermentation. Boring <laughs> to most people, you know, not, not to the people who really care about it. But that gives it its flavour and its character. Um, a lot of real ales are craft beer. A lot of craft beers are real ales in this country. Um, and I have a, as a, I, I've sort of come lately to journalism in my, in my sort of career, but I've developed a couple of tricks now. And one is when I'm interviewing an American craft beer brewer, 
and I say to them, oh yeah, we love you guys in the UK because, because uh, you know, our real ale is boring and shit and old-fashioned and, and, and no one likes it. But now we've got American craft beer and that's completely different, isn't it? <laughs> and every single time I do that with an American brewer, they go, what are you talking about? Real ale inspired us to do what yeah, we do. Absolutely. Real ale is the ultimate craft beer. Like, Thank yeah. you, I just needed you to say that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've both got the same trick in different ways, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, actually, when, when American brewers come, come visit and, and I'm meeting them, I don't even bother, you know, do not pass go, do not collect 200 pounds, etc., etc. Just take them straight to Fuller's. That's what they want. That's the American brewer beer money shot, for want of a better phrase. It really is. It's like if the guy, for most American brewers to have a pint of Fuller's ESB at source is the cause of some of the most hilarious grown men meltdowns I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> is this fangirls? Fan <coughs> oh, completely. Well, they're, 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 there is literally squealing. There's a whole nine yards. Um, if anybody's seen the Big Bang episode where, where Amy gets the tiara. Um, <laughs> so, so put it on me. Um, so put it in my glass. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. It, it just is hilarious. They have complete meltdowns. And the fact that, you know, I said to them, look, we'll get a private tour from the head brewer. <gasps> no. Um, and, you know, John's eternally brilliant and dry and Mancunian and fantastic. Um, and it just is, you know, it, it is. We've got to remember that actually, again, it goes back to my earlier comment about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If we, if we just try and say that actually, you know, again, going back to the jokes of, you know, well, no, craft beer started in London or you wipe you know, Thornbridge, Meantime, Roosters, and, you know, some of the other guys who, who uh, you know, Kellam Island, people like that, you try and wipe them off the map um, and just say, well, actually, it's only since we all started, you know, throwing bottles against the wall or sticking 14 million tonnes of hops and things or brewing 40% beers, uh, you know... It, Who are you talking about? It doesn't... <laughs> well, there's a few people who are guilty of that, in fairness. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't see how that helps... Um, because actually, if you don't, you know, also learn the lessons from what's gone past, if we don't look very carefully at what happened to Whitbread and Bass and myriad other big brewers, um, you know, it, into, well, then into Brew, then InBev, then now AB InBev, the reason why they've got such a power base is because these breweries built themselves up, built themselves, built, built themselves up. They're big pub companies, big breweries. And then they couldn't manage that anymore. And they had masses and masses of shareholders. And they got an offer that they had to take to their shareholders. And they couldn't refuse. So the whole thing fell down. We've now got property companies who own pubs who couldn't give less of a shit about the fact that they're pubs if they tried. There's some dreadfully, at least immoral, I would say, activities going on. Um, and then also we've now got, you know, Brands like Bass and Boddington's, which are unrecognisable. Boddington's isn't even brewed in cask anymore, which breaks my heart. Um, and if we don't, you know, if we try and ignore all this history, let alone the incredible disrespect it shows to phenomenal brewers like Fuller's and St. Hostels and, you know, and also in uh, Latter-day, Meantime, Kellam Island, Roosters, um, so on and so forth. Actually, if we don't look, at, look back at that, then we're doomed to make the same mistakes. And it just, it worry, that's what worries me about this whole, you know, thou shalt define craft kind of movement. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that most of it's really self-interested anyway. Um, we've obviously got this with big growth of craft beers. Artisan gins, not, just 
Am I right in thinking? You're probably going to say I'm completely wrong. Um, not quite there yet, it's just on the up. No, my, sen my sense is there's an incredible diversity. It's difficult to say which ones are going to survive. Things oh. like Sipsmiths have clearly taken <laughs> off and are clearly going to be, as it were, the, the, the Tonkeray and the Gordons of the next generation. And, and, and frankly, good luck to them. They, they make a wonderful gin. I, listening to both of you, I, I was very struck by the fact that um, Plymouth Gin has now acquired um, EU protected geographical oh. status. So have any beers acquired this? It's not protected. It's it's um, it's uh, designation of or is it origin of um, designation of origin or mm. whatever it is. Uh, so lambic, for example, um, yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is is protected. Um, the thing, the problem is, is that you don't the the way that beer is made. You can basically make any beer apart from pretty much mm. lambic, and even then it's really subtle variations that would basically take mm. a sniffer dog to figure out. Yeah. Um, but it's because of their unique flora and fauna, because of the spontaneous fermentation. So um, just in case any of you don't know what it is, basically they leave the sweet liquid out, um, and instead of actually inoculating it with brewer's yeast, they leave it to the elements, and basically this unique set of, of, of yeast and bacteria settle on it, and it creates the beers from the, from the lambic region which is the Bajotan land region, which is just outside Belgium. Um, so that's, that's what makes those utterly, utterly unique because their they're, they're yeah. local yeast and bacteria is obviously utterly unique to that area. Um, and th they were very clever and they got that a long, a long time ago now, didn't they? It's about, they've yeah. been protected for at least 10 years. So they were well ahead of the curve, but the problem is, is that the chemistry of beer says that you can actually recreate the water, mm. and then you're mm. using a mix of terroirs anyway, so yeah. it's kind of a bit, it's a bit difficult yeah, to do. Yeah, but equally, equally the same is true with gin. I mean, I, one could imagine sort of putting that, you know, that pot well, still they've got in Plymouth on a truck and sort of taking it anywhere. With gin specifically, yeah. yeah. You yeah. Can, you, 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 well, a lot of gin producers, they buy in their alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Big, well, yeah. In fact, you've got to have yeah. it. Uh, you, you're buying a big tank of industrial alcohol, yeah. and then you... Redistill it with your with your chosen. Um, yes, you rectify it with yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Basically, Absolutely. buy buy vodka, make gin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the slogan for this evening. Don't do that at home; it's illegal. For the last, just just say. Sorry, no. So it's illegal to distill. It sorry, okay. no, so illegal to distill. Yeah. You are not allowed to distill at home. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But for the last you three years, I've been lucky enough to judge the Radio Four Food and Farming Awards in the drink section. Which has just been amazing. Um, the problem is that because it's the BBC, they have to rotate you around quite regularly. And I think I'm, I think I'm up for the chop this year because you're not supposed to do more than three years. But but this year, one of our three finalists was uh, Warner Edwards Gin, mm. uh, made on a farm up in Northampton. And I just loved the story behind that so much. So you're, you're the second born in in a couple of farming families where it's like, you know, you're still kind of your first, the first son on the farm inherits everything. So when you're the second son, it's like. You got any ideas? <laughs> what are you going to do? And, and these two guys decided, I, th I think because they had a flower garden on, on the farm, they mm. said, well, we're going to create some essential oils and, some, and, and perfumes and things, which we need to buy a still for. But, but we'll only be using the still for about a month, a year if we do that. What else could you use a still for? <laughs> <laughs> and after about five minutes thought, <laughs> all the essential oils and perfumes yeah. went out the window. <laughs> then over there's this, this astonishing gin, but yeah. Why, why make perfume when you can make booze? <laughs> yes. Or it's, it, I'm sure you all know about sacred gin up in Hampstead, this Ooh. guy who has this sort of rather, rather, rather beautifully Germanic BMW-esque 
um, industrial still. I think he's in his garage still, and sort of makes this makes this wonderful gin and assembles this in this rather clinical way. And yet, what you get is this this beautiful sort of very distinctive North London gin. Yeah. If we can move, I, I know everyone wants to talk about booze and drink it all day, but if we can move on to where we drink it in pubs. Mm. Um, so it's probably fair to say that um, pubs in London are, are changing in. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and yeah. Um, one of our writers, one of the Londonist writers, when he heard I was chairing this, uh, emailed me, very vitriolically, <laughs> um, a paragraph which I'm going to read out because there is a wider point to this. Can I just check, is it either me or Pete who's upset him? <laughs> oh, no, he's just upset all the time. Oh, okay. Fine. Um, so there's something on the, Holloway Road, on the Holloway Road called The Spoke, which used to be a pub, once called The Marlborough and then called Angie's, and now it's some horrific combination of bar and coffee shop still somehow masquerading as a pub, at least from the outside, filled with push chairs all day, every day. There are plenty of bars and coffee shops already. Why the bloody hell can't our dirty old man pubs with carpets and dartboards be left alone? Sometimes I want ham, egg and chips, not fucking cured Milanese culatello, layered duck egg mousse <laughs> with campot pepper and twice-charred doorstep potato wedges, seared with Viano de Castello salt. I just made that up, but I bet you can fucking get that somewhere in Fitzrovia. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wider point buried in this. Um, which yes, is he that, needs help. Oh, he definitely does that. <laughs> but pubs traditionally have been kind of working class spaces, and with, I think, the rise of craft beer, we can argue, and I'm sure we will, that it's a middle class phenomenon, and there's this kind of encroachment of the middle classes into these working class spaces? I, I, I struggle with this question a hell of a lot mm. because, because I, I don't know what side of the fence I'm supposed to be on. So I was born in Barnsley to a working class family. I was the first person from my family ever to uh, go to university. And when it suits me, I will put on my metaphorical flat cap and I will be on the barricades with Comrade Corbyn. Um, and... <laughs> But I, I've lived in London for 25 years, and I'm middle class in any which way you choose to define it. This is why I can't, couldn't stay in Barnsley. Um, and, uh, and so I see it from both sides, and it's a very, very tricky... God, I'm not just going to sit on the fence. No, it's shit that pubs get taken over. Mm. But, um, but there's a pub near me, the Jolly Butchers in Stoke Newington, and uh, before, before the gentrification, it was an Irish fighting pub. Uh, there, were, there were ten tellies on the wall uh, that were high enough just out of reach of people to punch them when the racing didn't go the way that they wanted it to go. Uh, the Cronenberg was sour, uh, the Guinness was flat, and I loved it. Uh, and I would go in there quite often. But that pub was losing two grand a week. And so when it got turned into uh, a craft beer pub uh, with pints of Beaver Town uh, selling for £6.50 a pint and uh, a bunch of hideous hipsters sitting there going, it's a shame they changed it, it's a shame they changed it. Well, those hipsters weren't sitting in there mm. before it changed, mm. and it wasn't a viable business. Uh, and so pubs have to move. Pubs, pubs are a reflection of the communities that they're in, and they have to develop. If the, if the community changes, the pub has to change as well. If you get into how and why they change, and do they have to throw out everything in order to accommodate the new, I think that's another, another point. I think Pete's absolutely right here. There's... Um there's a sense in which um, districts tend to get the pubs that they deserve. But I think there's also a, there's a wider point here about what it is to be middle class. I admit, firstly, I think we should all admit that it's, there's nothing more middle class than sitting around complaining about the middle class. So, <laughs> and as, a, as, a, as an ex-public schoolboy with a PhD, I probably shouldn't be sort of pontificating too much about this. But 
it seems to me that the, when we talk about the middle class ruining something, whatever that is, I think what, we, what we're talking about is when the consumption of something, whether it's clothes or beer or whatever it may be, becomes a way of kind of exercising your moral and your social and your, your political identity. And I think that that is what is, is, is problematic, as it were. In a way, we're not talking about beer, we're not talking about buildings here, we're talking about the mood of pubs, what it is to go to these places, what it is to kind of sit in them. So it seems to me that, that there's a bigger story of gentrification that's going on here. It's not pubs changing, it's London changing. London is a... I would certainly say over the, the, the 15, 20 years that I've been here, London's a much less lovable place. It's kind of cleaner and wealthier, but it's not nearly as lovable as it was when I, when I, first, um, when I first came here. Um, yeah, I'll stop being an old fart there, but yeah, it, it, seems, it seems less lovable. Um, I'm actually going to take the conversation out of London and, 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 and actually pick up your point about whether it actually changes the... You know whether it's about your pushing the, the 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 demographic that was there out in the first place, and um, where I first fell in love with beer was actually in a pub uh, that was run by well, was just he's just retired was run by my in-laws, um, and because uh, you know if, you, if you're smart you marry somebody whose parents run a pub, so going to the in-laws you get to go to the pub. <laughs> so um, it, uh, it, it was really interesting to me because it was going back to the conversation earlier about, about brands disappearing and things like that. It was an old Bod's house originally and then it got taken over by successive different companies. Um, and what was really interesting was that the minute the cask Boddingtons disappeared, they expected to lose so many of their customers. But because they'd had for years and years and years 12 to 14 guest ale pumps on, what actually happened was those customers moved on to the guest beers. And I walked back in to find um, a guy at the bar, Tommy, who was one of the most feared men in Preston. Um, which, you know, Preston, it's not known for its um, civilization. Um, and, it is, it is uh, where temperance began, though, rather. It is where temperance began, yes. I can understand why, in fairness, yes. having met some of, the, some of the people up there. Um, and uh, it. it I expected that Tommy wouldn't be there because he was a die-hard bods drinker. Little tiny man, basically seemed like he was made out of bags of walnuts. You know those guys that are wiry and you can see every single one of their muscles? And, you know, he was mental. But um, he absolutely, he walked in and he went, Melissa, oh my God, I'm so pleased you're here. You've got to try this beer. And he told me all about it, up, down, left, right and centre. He said... I can't believe it's been all these years and I've been missing out on drinking these. And then he's proceeded to spend the next 25 minutes suggesting which beers I should try on the bar, telling me which beer festivals he'd been to, telling me how much he loved it, telling me how much less he was drinking as a result because he couldn't quite afford to drink all of it as much as he was used to do. And actually, he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone in that pub. So many of the old regulars that I used to serve when I worked behind the bar, doing, they slowly filtered in over the evening, and at least one of them would say to me, oh, uh, have you tried that one up there? So I don't, I don't always think it has to be a process of gentrification. I think it, ha it has to be a process of education, and I mean that in hopefully the least patronised way that I can say that, because it just sounds like, you know, you're just going, oh, bless them, they're a bit <laughs> thick and they don't know what they're doing. But it's not, it's actually, it's about saying to them, it's also about getting, sometimes, and one of the guys actually said that, this to me, and said, oh, I didn't, I, didn't think, I didn't think I'd get it, because they've been told that, you know, 
they only deserve cheap stuff and they only mm. deserve Iceland mm. food and they only deserve cheap shit, pile them high, sell it cheap lager and so on. And that, that's been ingrained mm. into you that, you know, don't have ideas above your station. But that, that's what yeah. really angers me and that, that's something yeah. I, I deal with, with all the time. I've got relatives in South Wales who are dirt poor, mm. who, who, who drink all sorts of interesting different stuff. Um, I've got a price list from, uh, we've both worked with Otley Brewery, yeah. um, which is a revived brewery brand, and, and they gave me a, they, someone brought in a price list from the Otley Brewery when it used to be in business in 1914, when it was serving working class people in working class pubs. And the list of beers that Otley supplied to these pubs in 1914 was a, was a beer geek's dream. Mm. You know, they had a range of about 12 different beers and they had IPAs and they had stouts and porters and all this kind of stuff. They're working class drinks. It's not that people aren't sophisticated enough to appreciate them. And, and the problem with the, the I think the, the problem of gentrification is it's this British disease where we see something interesting come along. And in America, the reason we love America is that you go over there, it's like, oh, wow, try this. This is brilliant. I'll try this. Over here we go, oh, that's interesting. How can we make more money out of it by giving people less? And it's not the, it's not the fact that pubs are being taken over and having uh, a big range of beers put in them that's the problem. It's the fact that those beers are being sold for £6.50. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. And um, sometimes... Do the brewers need to charge that? I mean, are these... Legitimate overheads of the pubs? Did I hear a snort? Some, uh, some, some, yes, some, no. It's a there is no applied formula across the board. But going back to the American analogy, the thing that annoys me is, is that within five seconds of something being, being, you know, popular over here, that's it. It's you know the current way to diss things. It's all fucking hipsters. I can't tell you how angry it makes me when somebody calls a good beer. Oh, is it one of those hipster beers? It's like, dude, do I look like a fucking hipster to you? My ass is way too big for a start. No laughing. So, it's, uh, it's really, but seriously, I mean, it just bugs the hell out of me. It's not, you know, the minute we do, the, particularly the, the media wants to immediately bang, label it, it's, oh, it's hipster beer, it's a fad. I mean, it's all, we've already got pizzas in the national papers going, has the craft beer bubble burst? It's like, oh, fuck off. Um, no, it just, it, it's in, it drives me nuts. You, I mean, when do you ever see on Saturday Kitchen or any of the food shows, when do you ever see them matching beer with food? You don't, it's all wine. But because apparently it's not within the BBC guidelines to put beer with the food. Okay, yeah. When we were chatting before and you were talking about a pub in, in Hoxton that has managed to sort of keep yeah. the best of both worlds. Yeah, I'm, I've just written this new book on pubs, which is released in October next year, um, uh, where I'm profiling different pubs. And this, this was a great one because I, I, I kind of had my list of great pubs that I knew I wanted to review, and I was hoping that I'd get some surprises and that I'd come across some that I never knew were there. And we were talking about how when I go in sort of like around Shoreditch and places, I always misjudge the, different, the distance between... Shoreditch and Duke's Brew and Q, where Beavertown started in, mm -hmm. in Haggerston. I always think it's 200 yards, and it's not. It's, no. It's, it's nearer a mile. <laughs> and, and if you're on a pub crawl, that can get quite inconvenient if you find yourself in cold weather, stuck between the two, going, it's not round this corner. I really need to do now. Yeah. Um, we went to this, into this pub. It, it looked hideous from the outside. It, the, the windows were almost opaque. You couldn't see through them at all. I was like, we're going to have to go in. I, I need the loo. We're just going to have to go in. Um, it looks horrible, we'll get a half of something and come straight back out. And we went in and there were these old guys sitting at the bar. And, and it, it, the bar itself looked like 
so I, th I think one of the most treasured sort of pub interiors in London at the moment is, is the old Truman's Brewery interiors mm. from like the 50s and the 60s where you've got this kind of orange wood mm. with gold lettering on. Yeah. Uh, the place used to, if it's in the right light, the, the place glows. And, and this place had that interior simply because it hasn't been refurbished since, <laughs> since the 1960s. And at the bar, there was these old geezers sitting at the bar drinking their pints of Foster's Top and when they saw my wife, they went, all right, treacle. And, uh, and it was all kind of like, wow, proper East End boozer. And then just around the corner, there was a bunch of hipsters playing vinyl on a little vinyl deck and, and, and flyers for, um, for, for live gigs there and stuff. And Camden and Meantime and uh, Colonel beers on the bar. And it was like, shit, this pub's... It, it's just stayed the same for long enough. And now it appeals to like the new generation of Hoxton and the old generation of Hoxton. Mm -hmm. Hoxton. I mean, it, it didn't have to kick the old guys out in order to accommodate the new guys. And I think that's very rare, but it proves it can be done. Have you noticed uh, he you hasn't told us the name of this little gem yet? <laughs> it's in my book that comes out next October. <laughs> <laughs> Just on the, the other side of that coin, I, I, I live down in Peckham, and again, a nameless pub around the corner from me has a little chalkboard outside that says on it, an unpretentious local boozer. And of course, you walk in there, and it's been sort of steam cleansed of, of the old guys in the corner. And it's obnoxious and you feel like you're kind of interrupting the, um, the, the private club of the bar staff. And it's not that the beer's bad, as you say. It, it, mm. It's good beer, it's a good place to drink, but it's just the atmosphere has been... Yeah. Whatever, whatever was there has been obliterated. There is no connection between the past of that pub and its present. In this book, and I, I, I can't believe we got this far into the session without bringing Orwell and <laughs> yes. someone, someone underwater. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Orwell... Is there anybody who hasn't read The Moon Underwater by George Orwell. Right, just Google it when you get mm. home. It's about a thousand words long. I, I totted up once. I've probably written a million words about pubs over the course of the last 15 years. Orwell, in this thousand word piece, says more about pubs than I've said in a million words. Um, and Orwell used to drink a lot around Islington, um, and he describes this pub, The Moon Underwater, uh, which is the perfect pub. Uh, and then he reveals, actually, spoilers, <laughs> it, it is 70 years old. Um, but he reveals that actually it doesn't exist. It's a combination of his three favourite pubs, which are the Hen and Chickens on Highbury Corner, uh, the Compton Arms just up around the corner, and the Canterbury. Um, and not all of, there's no one pub that has all these fa favourite features, and so he pulls them all together. Uh, but the first thing he says mm. is, for me, it's about atmosphere. Yeah. It's about atmosphere. Absolutely. And Mintel, market research organisation today, who write reports on everything from baby food to bottled water to, to drink, when they do reviews and, and market research surveys saying, why do you choose the pub that you drink in? It's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And it, wherever you look, that's the most important thing. And so I set myself the challenge with my book of saying, okay, I'm going to review these pubs based on their atmosphere, mm -hmm. which yeah. is really hard to do compared to, okay, Stella costs £3.40 a pint and they've got this many hand pumps of real ale on, da 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 da, da. To try and judge the atmosphere of a place. But it's, the most, it's been the most rewarding task. It's been... Yeah. Amazing, trying to find out where, trying to look, sit and listen to a pub. Just sit in a pub and go, okay, I need to not keep my notebook closed for 20 minutes mm. and just let it come in through your pores. Feel it. Yep. And when you do that, you fall in love with pubs all over yeah. again. The um, good ones. My, my, my biggest bugbear in, in London at the moment is uh, because we are, because it is the, you know, for want of a better phrase, the craft beer bar or the craft beer pub is just burgeoning. Ooh, there's a real lack of service. Mm. And there's a big... The people really need to learn the difference between service and servile. And, <laughs> you know, I'm getting really tired of kind of getting the, the whole, you know, the, the 
sort of the beer sort of given to you. There's a bloke looking over there, it's pouring over there. There's no beer mats on the bar or anything like that. And you're thinking, I'm so pleased I wore a nice dress this evening. And it's just, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a real, there's a dearth of service. Mind you, that's because we don't value it in the UK mm. either, which I think also mm. comes back to the whole issue with beer is uh, because we don't value a service culture in the UK. Beer being the lowest priced entry point alcohol, I think we have a tendency not to value it as much either. Okay, I think we've got about five or so minutes before I'm going to throw it open to uh, questions. Uh, but before we do that, I want to go back to something that you touched on, which is uh, the closure of pubs and being turned into all kinds of things, mainly luxury flats. Yeah. And this is... I think it's largely a London problem. I'm sure it's no, happening it's elsewhere. <coughs> oh, no, it's not. No, 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 it's not largely a London problem. Unfortunately, it's really not. Um, again, well, to be honest, the simple fact of the matter is, is that it's pub co's, they're property companies. They don't give a fuck about the people who run pubs or drink in pubs or pubs as a local community asset. They just want to get their money's worth out of them. To be honest, it's business. Do you think, like, how do, you, how do pubs fight back against that, that kind of attitude that, you know, we're just going to sell it, you know, somebody can make millions out of it as flats and... It's, it's a really difficult one. Um, well, you can turn them into these, uh, um, uh, the assets ACV, of, as, ACV yeah. assets community value. The, um, the, the Ivy House in Nunhead um, was the first one, first pub to get ACV status and the first pub to uh, where the community banded together and bought the pub so the developers couldn't take it and, and ruin it. I, I, I think... Melissa's right about pub co's, which is a national problem. Um, in London, though, um, there's kind of like 29 pubs a week closing for good at the moment. That's the net figure, taking into account new pub openings. Um, and those, those closure figures are bigger in London than they are anywhere else. Now, pubs in London are busier than they are anywhere else, in my experience. Um, uh, I saw a story of a pub last year uh, that was making £700,000 profit a year which is now being closed for redevelopment to turn to a block of flats. So you can have a pub that is packed out every night of the week uh, that is making really good money for the people who run it in London and it will never be worth as much money as it will be if you want to sell it for redevelopment into a block of flats. Mm. This is the thing, it always used to be when a pub closed, you think, oh, well, it wasn't one of the good pubs. Yeah. But no, I mean, the, the, if you don't know the, uh, the Gladstone Arms in... It's yeah. um, under threat. Yeah, it's, that's under threat. It's, what is it, yeah. Borough, or, Borough of London Bridge. Mm. It, is, it is one of the best, but I love that pub. It's a fantastic and, pub. That's right. Yeah, and there's a very good chance that it could be turned into flats. And, and, and that's the thing, so you want to go, and, and when, when I wrote about this pub last year, I said, okay, I understand that we live in a capitalist economy where, where the financial value of something is a higher priority than its social value, its cultural value, or anything else. But can we please actually have a situation where, even if the financial value is the most important thing, can we at least consider the other measures of value? Well, can case, can they actually be on the table? Can we go, okay, well, it's worth 27 million as a block of flats, it's only worth 5 million as a pub, therefore it's got to be a block of flats. Well, yeah, I, but it's worth so much more. I guess in which case we're turfing big lists out of Buck Palace. <laughs> the British Museum's going to be awesome as flats. You know, you got to, you know, yeah, there is, there's there's a, everything. Yeah, exactly. Let's, everything let's just, just say, you know, the Tower of London, that, that penthouse is going to be amazing. You know, you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to take some point where you've got to say, hang on a minute, guys, this is, this is part of our social 
fabric. And it's, it's a destruction of London as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, what, what makes London great. London mm. has lost half its live music venues mm. in the last yeah. seven years. Half its live music venues in the last seven years. It's, it's, being, it's being destroyed. London is being destroyed. And until we start to think about cultural value and social value and people value and community value on the same page as financial value, we're fucked as a city. Well, it is the double-edged sword of living in a big city, isn't it? Getting made, you know, you're... you're we all work ridiculous hours. We have less leisure time than ever before. Um, you know, being you know the the concept of going out and picketing of a weekend as opposed to maybe having an hour's lie-in or actually getting down the gym because you've been working from seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night. That's part of the issue, yeah. and we've got to try and engender a little bit more. Um, Belief in places, and not just when celebrities turn out. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we've ended on tad of a day on that. Uh, <laughs> does anybody have any more cheerful questions, uh, particularly about about gin? I feel like we've ignored Richard a little bit. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Okay, there are some some microphones coming around because we're recording this. It will be on the site tomorrow. Um, hi. Hi. Um, you're talking about locality. You're talking about middle class snobbery. You're talking about price markups. And yet you've got three people up there representing grain and no one representing the grape. What's your opinion on wine, given that on the one hand you've got all the sort of natural wine wankers like Mission and uh, Saga and Wild and whatnot, versus you've got people like um, Finoteca who have been around for 10 years doing a fantastic job. But you're only talking about beer and spirits. What's that about? Did, we, did, we inv did you invite a wine person? Uh, I think that the idea was um, that, that craft beer and gin are sort of having a bit of a renaissance in London at the minute, and this is but Londonist so is wine. event. Wine's been having a renaissance well, But there's, the only, there's only one wine producer in London. Now, I think the point is... That That's because there are no vineyards in London other than 40, 40 Hall. I, I'm aware of that, but there is one person, actually. There is actually one place, but London Crew, who are doing wine blending and wine... That's not like, English wine. I'm sorry? That's not English wine. I didn't say it was. I said there was one London producer. That's all. The point is, you're talking about London's drinking, not London's production. Okay. Sorry, do, do you have anything that, that you think... Yeah, my question is, why do you have no one up there representing the grape? You've got three people run, representing the grape. In, in fairness, if you look at representation of wine out, out there, I think wine's doing all right by itself. Yeah. If you look at the national mm -hmm. media, you've got more you've got wine columns in every single national newspaper. You've got more representation of wine on TV than you ever have beer and gin. I think maybe this is just a nice little corner for us to get, get our own voice. In that case, don't also, call it London say, is drinking, um, just call it London is drinking beer. No, because um, I programmed this event and the two drinks mostly associated with London are beer and gin, in my and hopefully other people's opinion. And while people drink wine in London, it's not the most associated. Um, sorry, we never said wine on the, on the, on the, um, on the blurb. No, you said drinking. Yeah, but if you read down, it's mainly beer and gin. Um, anyway, I hope you had a good night apart from that. <laughs> Does anybody have any other questions? Again, particularly Jin. There's a Will. There's a Will. There's a gentleman right in front of the uh, in the green. Got a lady there as well. Beverly. Yeah. Um. You're just talking about the image problem of craft beer, getting the message across to the media that it's not just a fad. Um. What? Um. I, I, it sounds like you you need a kind of like PR campaign to kind of address that. And um. What are you doing to communicate to the media that it's not just a, uh, you know, um. 
a one-off. How are you? How are you countering that nonsense about this hipster beer? Um, are, are you doing anything, or do you see, do you see a way of changing that, or um, well, taking on the BBC? Campaign. Uh, there is an industry-wide campaign. It's a little divisive, um, but they're they're doing a you know they're at least they're getting their voices heard, and there's called the beer for that campaign. Um, yeah, I mean, as individual, you know, as, as individuals and freelancers, there's only so much that, that mm. we can do. Um, I mean, I, I'm generally, I, I try to work at the ground up as well as work with the media, as, uh, obviously being a journalist. Um, I, to be honest, I get a significantly more of a kick about, you know, getting a room full of 100 people and getting them drinking beer when 25 of them walked in as non-beer drinkers and only 10 of them walk out as non-beer drinkers, that gives me more of a kick than constantly you know, beating my head against a brick wall of the commissioning editors. Um, but no, I mean, we all, we all try in our own ways, whether it's engaging with... Um, so I do a lot of engaging with chefs, a lot of whom go on these programmes or who write for the national press, and they're subtly knocking on doors for, 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 the, for the beer thing. Um, you know, I know Pete's had tremendous success with, with you know, your profile with... Uh, Radio 4 and the, and the food and farming and things like that. So it's, it's really, it's, it's softly, softly catchy monkey, but it also, it does require, you know, a push from the readers as well. I think, wasn't it you that did the brilliant thing of the, the Guardian said it wasn't their demographic? Was it the Guardian or the Indie? You said it wasn't their demographic and it was exactly the demographic of, yes. of, of beer drinkers. Yeah. When I used to work in advertising, <coughs> I, I, I got market research that broke down their readership by their attitudes yeah. and showed that they were the most beer pro-beer yeah. readership of any newspaper. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, it's, 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 it's starting to change. It's, it you know, it's, it's that whole thing about turning around a super tanker. Um, we all do our own little bits, as you say. I think the thing is, and I, 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 I always take a, a pause, a literal pause, to kind of not be divisive about beer, beer versus wine. But you're right, wine, wine has... There are wine cons in every single broadsheet, yeah. uh, at least one, uh, in every single kind of Saturday magazine, things like that. Um, and I love wine, I drink wine as my off-duty drink. Yes. It's the one I don't have to think about, yeah. it's the one I don't have to know yeah. about. Uh, so I can go home and I can just enjoy <laughs> it, and it's bloody wonderful. Yeah. Um, but, but what beer has done, because wine has a... And by the way, wine coverage is getting slashed and murdered in, yeah, the, in, the, in the mainstream yeah. press. Uh, so we shouldn't just kind of go, oh, it's all... But, no, no. but, but, but wine, wine has all these columns and all these writers and, and, and all these... Uh, positioning on, on TV and stuff. What beer has done really well is harness social media, mm. uh, it, this kind of outside role, outsider role, and Twitter and Facebook. But if you look at any, I mean, these lists are bullshit anyway, but, but various different people do lists of the top 20 food and drink blogs and things like that. And when you look at blogs, if there's a, if there's a list of top 20 uh, drinks blogs, 18 of those will be uh, yeah. beer and, and two will be wine. So. So I think I think there, I think there is something more grassroots about beer, yeah. Uh, yeah. and something more establishment about wine. But, but it's, it's like it's like everything, isn't it? So you know things go like that, and it's you know that kind of sine wave kind of kind of thing. And I'm I'm sure you know I'm sure you're finding that, that social media and and, and oh, sort of new media absolutely. is better for gin. And I think I think as well we, we we should have some sort of trust and optimism that a good a good product will find its way out. I think I think there's a question of kind of bums on seats or bums on bar stools here. I mean I think people are showing their preference for these for these new craft beers and these new craft gins. Absolutely. Too cynical. Just one happy person. <laughs> the only okay, happy so historian in London. Oh, we've got a def, lady def, over yes. there. We've got a lady down guarantee. here. We've got a gentleman at the back. And oh, Christ, loads. Okay, uh, Scott, you've got me there. Oh, thank you. Um, actually, a question for all of you. Um, what do you think about the uh, increase in food in pubs 
I mean, this certainly has kind of increased over the last sort of like 20 mm. years now. Mm. I mean, you know, when you talk about atmosphere, um, in talking of the, you know, walking into a pub and what do you think about your ketchup bottle being on the table? I mean, does it fit into that environment or is it something wrong? Um, okay, I mean, but, but my first thing first is don't call it a pub if it's a fucking restaurant. <laughs> that really annoys me. Um, you know, I don't get me wrong. I love, I love, you know, there's a couple of great places which are effectively restaurants which used to be pubs and at least they've got a few beers around the place. But um, to be honest, the, the big part of the reason the big growth in pubs was the smoking ban. But also, the other thing as well is that we're, we've become a nation obsessed with food. Mm. So it's important the pubs reflect, again, going back to it should reflect the demographic, then actually the pub doesn't reflect the fact that we've become a nation obsessed with food, then it's actually not going to appeal to its, to its local audience. But the final thing as well is actually a lot of these pub companies that we've been talking about, you quite often don't actually have to give them any money from your food offering. So whereas you might mm. be paying... £140 for a barrel of beer that the pub next door to you is paying £70 for. You can, however, take all the money from the food, and if your, if your dry sales overtake your wet sales, if that's 60% of your sales, you may just about, fingers crossed, keep your head above water. Okay. Um, Will, there's some people down the front. Lady here. Hi. This is a question for Richard. I'm Catherine, and I'm writing a thesis on the renaissance of gin in the London drink scene. And I was just wondering, in the last sort of 30 years, mm -hmm. um, how would you say the typical demographic of the average gin drinker has changed? It's become younger, it's become urban, I think. It's become, I hate words like edgy and hip, but it's certainly <laughs> taken on those qualities. But again, I, I, I think... You're way ahead of me on this, I'm sure, but I think, I think all of this needs to be set in the context of the way that gin's reputation has gone up and down across the world over, over two or three hundred years, absolutely. Um, I think it has to be tied up with media and cinema representations, and I think as well, it, so much of gin's present status goes back to prohibition. It's the, the strangest thing is the way that it's, it's in the speakeasies mm. of prohibition mm. that gin acquires this mystique. You know, the cocktail becomes this hip, all of these awful words, you know, something that's fundamentally modern. I think. So I think in a way, almost all modern cocktail bars are trying to be prohibition speakeasies. And I think that applies to the kind of the, the, the landscape of drinking in London. If you go to the um, Star at Night in Soho, I mean, I think that, that's, it's a great place. And it's very obviously trying, trying for that sort of, that sort of image. Yeah, kind of the whole Gatsby thing. Yeah, exactly, sort of really, exactly. Really sort of, everybody sort of embraced that whole Gatsby thing. And yeah, then suddenly yeah, yeah. it was all... You know, flapper girls and, and exactly. gin. And then Mad Men, you know, that's full yeah. of martinis as yeah, well. You yeah, could, could yeah. you really yeah. walk into a bar these days without there being a secret door? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We I was just going to say, do you I think it's also because the style of gin that's being produced now is a lot more experimental and a, a lot less juniper-focused and less sort of grandma perfumey than the gins of your... It's certainly more diverse. I mean, I, I think it's something we didn't get onto, but I think it's fascinating, is the role of kind of heritage and ideas of authenticity in how we think about beer. I think a massive part of the marketing of craft beer is kind of going back mm. to a, an older idea of what beer is, and that's true. I'm, I was astounded to see things like old Tom reappearing on the market. This is this kind of sweeter, heavier version of gin. We're also used to London dry gin, which is invented in the 1820s, 1830s. It's the classic sort of slightly citrusy, junipery, very kind of clean gin. Um, no, I mean, as, as, as I've said before, there's, there's, there's never been a better time to drink gin in this, in this city. You will get more diverse kinds of gin. You can drink recreations of historical gins. You can drink Geneva, all sorts of things. Um, 
I think it's also it's all kind of echoed um, craft beer in a way as well because yeah. you're not you're not just getting the, the same old gin. So I did, I did a yeah, collaboration yeah. gin with a Welsh distillery and, and it had you know, Gallangal and lime, so Scottish yeah. Cafe Lime and yeah. Lemongrass, yeah. and then it was aged in a red wine barrel. And you've got the guys at East London Gin who are doing like pink grapefruit and Earl Grey. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's a real, I think there's a reflection yeah. almost of the craft beer movement. Absolutely. Almost passing, almost handing off that creativity yeah, 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 to yeah, the gin yeah. movement. And also that, I, we, were, we were talking about terroir, but the idea of kind of building that into your gin as well. Yeah. There's, there's black, Blackwoods up in the Shetlands has mm. this very distinctive Hebridean gin, which everybody should buy a bottle of. It's, mm. uh, it's wonderful, like, wonderful stuff. I think the Good. other night, the other dynamic you can't ignore is something that we see in beer, but I think it applies across all drinks, is you don't drink what your mum and dad drank. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Absolutely. And my, my, my first job yeah. after university was working in an ad agency that had the account for Gordon's Gin. And they did these cinema ads at the time where you just have a, a green screen mm. With, mm. with some weird sound effects. And you, it was an in, a more innocent age of advertising. Uh, and you'd spend 20 seconds trying to figure out what the sound effects were, and then it would come up and it would say... Uh, a, a, a grasshopper uh, on on a lime skin um, doing, with a tennis ball. Oh, I don't know. Mm. You know, I, it, they were better than that. They were um, taking a lot of drugs. But, but, but like it was, a lot of drugs. But, 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 it was, but the, the point behind that brief uh, for those ads, and they were good, I promise you, look them up on YouTube, <laughs> they're better than what, my lamentable uh, ability to try and remember them. Um, but it was like people drinking gin were literally dying off. You know, they, everyone, Gordon's were looking at a target market where every one of their users was over 60. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and they had to attract a younger yeah. audience. I think, I think Breakback for them was the kind of the Hustler ad um, yeah. series, wasn't it? That was one that kind, yeah. of, kind of broke, broke back because it was harking back, but it was also really mm. modern because it was mm. now so old that it was retro and cool. Exactly. And, and, and you see it in everything. So cider, the cider revival 10 years ago was because... You know, when I was 18, cider was a drink that you, you drank on a park bench. Um, whether you were a tramp or a 15-year-old, it can, mm. no difference. And then, then the Alcopop generation didn't drink cider. So when the Alcopop generation was 25, cider had lost its negative cues mm. and was mm. cool again. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing with gin now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, in that same advertising age, we, 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 we did a kind of jokey thing where we said, okay, if we, we're all advertising geniuses, how would we resurrect Campari? <laughs> um, and we sat there, we, so just, we, we just chucked around some ideas. And then, exactly. like, then like five years later, Campari yeah, yeah, was yeah. cool again. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Because we, 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 were the last, we were the last people who could remember Campari being Indeed. cool. You know. Or Aperol. I mean, who the fuck had heard of Aperol? You know. Well, here's, here's the joy. They, they have, although it didn't quite work for Baby Sham, did it? It'll never work for Baby Sham. No, they did try to bring back Baby Sham recently. God love them, they were optimistic. Uh, Scott, there's a lady in a checked scarf there, and then Will, there's a gentleman right at the back. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask about drinking establishments. You kind of you talked about the George and Borough, and obviously Gin and Gin Palace has had a massive influence because I think they invented the bar, something along those lines. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> gin Palaces, I think, invented the bar because of being shops and people going up to the bar to go and get served. That kind of invented the way that we experience pubs now. Do you mean sort of vertical drinking, standing yeah, up? And, yeah, right. yeah. And Is then, it, obviously, yeah. lots of things in between, interwar pubs, estate pubs, etc. And then craft beer revolution and all these Brooklyn pubs and then the middle class is ruining everything anyways. But what do you kind of think is going to happen in the next hundred years? What do you kind of think is going to happen to drinking establishments going forward? Would it be more about 
local drinking? Will it be more about local breweries owning pubs or...? There's, that's a difficult question. There's a ton of different dynamics informing that. Um, mm. A big one is that traditionally Britain has always been what we call an on-trade drinking culture, whereas oh. other countries have been an off-trade drinking culture. You drink mostly... In America, you've always drunk more beer at home, or drunk more whatever you're drinking at home, uh, rather than in the pub. And we're moving towards that kind of off-trade mm. thing now. Until well, the 1920s... Off-trade sales have just overtaken on-trade for the yeah, first they have. time in... In recorded history. Until the 1920s, you, even, whether you wanted to drink or not, you would rather be in the pub than in your home because your home had nothing in it. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1920s, we got electric light, we got central heating, we got the wireless. Um, we can, in the last 10 years, we've got wireless high-speed internet, we've got Netflix, we've got flat-screen plasma tellies. Suddenly, the home is a lot more attractive place to be. Mm -hmm. And pubs are not keeping up. You know, the, in, in, well, you think about how your home has changed in the last 10 years, the pub might have had a new liquor paint. If you're lucky, it's got some Wi-Fi. Uh, it's got BT Open Zone, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you, and that'll be it. But I, I sort of contrast that against the fact that the pub has been around for a thousand years mm. and it's just too good an idea to die. And my new book, I've kind of got, well, the, the average pub, the pub where you open the doors and you polish the bar waiting for people to come in, is in real trouble. But the good pub, the legendary pub, the pub that we don't mention the name of because we don't want anyone else going there and spoiling it. There are thousands God, of... God, you're selfish bastards. <laughs> there, there, are, there are pubs like that everywhere and those pubs will always be there. And the rather worrying thing about that is the reason those pubs will survive is even when there's no economic case for their survival, they'll, they're run by people who are so passionate about pubs uh, that they put their all into it and the pub is an extension of their personality and they'll work 100 hours a week to make that pub special and those pubs will be there in 100 years' time. Okay, settle back. So the talk has been focusing mostly on the pubs as a central point of drinking, which I'm entirely enamored with. As you can probably hear from my voice, I'm not originally from here. Um, and it was one of the charms of London when I first lived here 20 years ago that I just fell a bit in love with that very culture and have myself, even from an outside perspective, been sad to see how it's been going away. But in the 10 years that I've been living here now, something that I have seen really emerge and that London is leading in is in the cocktail scene. London has some of the best cocktail bars in the world. In fact, the best cocktail bar in the world, although as of a month and a half ago, it's not worth going to because all the staff walked. Um, <laughs> which, but which, which one? Is this uh, the, the Langenham, oh, no. the artisan at the Langenham. Oh, the Langenham, yeah, it's a shame. Might the, be, have got dandelion now. Yeah, no, 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 that, yeah, and, yeah, and that's Ryan Chetawanda's, like... Ryan he's the, the, just amazing. Yeah, the, oh, there's someone's amazing willing to share and, names. And in terms of consuming gin, mm. um, that's where I kind of have gotten my education, and, and I still can't keep up. There's so many good things. So how do you feel about the influence of cocktail bars and places like that as not as hopefully not a replacement for pubs because love pubs but that too has an influence and in that way London is leading in spirits. I think cocktail bars are distinctively urban and gin is, is, is an urban spirit. It's always had attributed to it all of the vices and the virtues of city life. So yeah, the more cocktail bars the better as you say. This is, this is the best place to be drinking not only gin but also cocktails at the moment. So yeah, more of them please, yeah. Okay, any... Okay, I can definitely say we are not going to get around everybody. Um, but <laughs> this, this, this lady yeah, seems very yes, keen. Yes, this gentleman down, gets, yeah. asked, gets it's, to it's, ask this question. Really, really specific. Uh, sorry, Rachel. Okay. Um, yeah, so the bar's going to be up until ten, and 
people will sign their books. So if you have a specific question, we'll just you know, don't, don't harangue them. I have a really specific question that I'm hoping somebody in this room will know. When I was about 16, I read a short story which imagined a future in which the working class were all drinking wine and the middle classes were all drinking beer and discussing its relative merits and the uh, effects of hops and you know, dry hopping techniques and the type of yeast being used. And I have asked everybody I know what that short story is, <laughs> and nobody knows. Does anybody in this room know what that short story is? Because it's come true. What is it? Is it Kingsley Kingsley Amos? Amos. Right, fantastic. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it that does actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, that well done, Good that work. guy. Fantastic. Okay, Scott. Lond Londoners fixed it for him. <laughs> have we got a guy here? <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy him two. Sorry, thanks. You've, you've identified... <laughs> sorry, you've identified... Sorry, it was a Kingsley Ames short collection of short stories, was it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah. That's all right. You've identified a lot of reasons tonight why we've had this boom. You've identified the, the tax cuts and the changing habits, etc. I wonder if you ever think, you know, as you said, 10 years ago, we were at two breweries in London. Um, if you ever think that we kind of hit rock bottom and are now bouncing back up. I know that when I was going to pubs 10 years ago, if you wanted gin, you had Beef Eater mm -hmm. or Gordon's. Yeah. And if you wanted a beer, you had Foster's or Leuvenbrau. Yeah. And I wonder how much of the, the, resur the resurgence comes from just going, my God, there's mm -hmm. no choice mm -hmm. left anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was exactly, I mean, yeah. what Pete said earlier is, if, and funny enough, we found out through, through, I can't remember who it was, somebody, somebody had been to both of one of our talks and said, do you guys realize you're saying exactly the same thing? And we're like, well, <laughs> which, which one? Um, and it is the whole, the next generation doesn't want to drink what their parents were drinking. So, for example, um, you know, when I was young, um, which is a worrying amount of years ago now, um, my parents, you know, thought the height of sophistication was, was Black Tower and Blue Nun. Um, and then it moved on to, you know, sort of Hardee's and Wolf Lass. And, and then, of course, from that knock-on effect, people who were 15, 20 years younger than me know more about more niche wines and so on and so forth. So actually, they kind of grew up with a fair amount of wine knowledge as their right. And what do you always do? When you, when you kind of know that, you think, oh, that's kind of what my parents do, and you know, I kind of know about that. So what's that over there? And then that's when your Thornbridges and your Mean Times and you know, your Roosters and, and your Kellam Islands suddenly start tapping on this sort of door of consciousness and saying, hi, we're making really, really tasty and slightly higher ABV and more complex beers. Because whilst I will defend a pint of you know, ordinary bitters to the death, the thing is it's not actually a flavour profile which you know, these 15, 20 years younger than me people have been growing up with. They've been growing up with complex floral and higher alcohol products. It's one of the things that I find um, particularly frustrating when people say, oh, you know, my, my girlfriend, wife, sister, mate, she really, really loves wine but hates beer. What do you keep on giving her? Oh, Young's Ordinary, mate. It's fantastic. It's the nectar of the gods. Doesn't taste anything like a wine. If you give them, if you give people that have got something that's got some complex floral notes, higher alcohol, 
something that's going to not just basically taste like brown, muddy water to them, then it's suddenly going to be really interesting. That was my beer epiphany. I tried Roosters and then I tried Kelham Island and suddenly it was like, holy shit, this stuff's amazing. Uh, but, you know, now, later, as I've sort of, you know, done my big hop curve and, you know, we were talking about earlier, drunk double IPAs in the rake in Borough Market at 11 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> That ended up with both our other halves being very pissed off with us. Um, but uh, it, 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 it was, you know, it, it's one of those things where you actually turn around and say, actually, I'm going to sort of settle down on the other side. It's a bit like discovering a lot of, you know, new world wines and then maybe coming back a little bit more to the classic styles and the Europeans. Um, and, and that, for me, I think it's actually, it's more about, it speaks to our sophistication of palate as well now. We are global citizens more than ever before. I mean, let's face it, you know, EasyJet, Ryanair, everybody, they've opened up the whole of Europe to us. Actually, I shouldn't call EasyJet that anymore. They are significantly better than they used to be. Um, you know, Low-cost travel has made us able to hop over to Italy, hop over to Rome. Plus also, you know, again, we, we are in a, a relatively wealthy generation and you know, we are lucky enough to be able to sit here and discuss things like this. And I think it, it really speaks to the fact that we have this sophistication um, of palate now that we probably never have before, particularly in the UK. You know, we're an island, and, you know, proudly so. And whilst we've got a lot of global influences, they've always tended to be anglicised. Whereas actually now, if you think about it, you can get authentic Thai, you can get authentic Chinese, you can get authentic Japanese, Indian, Vietnamese, everything you can think of now. And actually, I think that speaks, again, the way that craft beers come up. As you say, we'd hit rock bottom on a flavour front, and it's kind of grown with that kind of kind of movement. Of course, the problem with this, the whole problem with skipping a generation thing is that your kids and grandkids are going to be drinking Hofmeister and Lee Frau Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Eating so, Finder's crispy pancakes and listening to Demis Roussos. <laughs> okay, um, one more question. Does anybody...? Okay, um, Will D. Sorry, uh, just going back to back. Sorry. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what you think about the, the growth of um, micropubs and such things. So, I live in North Kent and there's, there's a lot of sort of small breweries popping up in small spaces which have been taken over by sort of local beer enthusiasts. And they don't sort of like aim to make a profit or anything. They just aim to get local beers out and actually sort of like sell beers which they enjoy themselves. Uh -huh. And there's, there's, there's micropubs open enough sort of every sort of like month or two. And it's quite exciting, and I was wondering sort of how that relates to sort of. You're saying pubs are closing at quite quite a sort of dramatic rate, but micro pubs in, in Kent are opening quite sort of like rapidly. So how I does that relate to? I think there's still only about 15 of them, though. There are, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't really offset. I mean, we're we're talking about a national average, yeah. and it's a net average, sadly. I mean, I, I I don't think in in to my knowledge, and you are stats bloke, so here's a question for you. Um, sorry, that makes him sound a lot more boring than he is. <laughs> His books are really good. Um, so, <laughs> um, does it actually take into account brewery taps and and things like that when you look at the net average? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah. So so the number of pubs is declining, but. When I when I finished when I finished my last my, my book on pubs, so I've just, I finished two weeks ago. Uh, there's a bit on the future of the pub and where's the pub going, and every 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 sort of sliver of hope that I could see in the market for pubs, there's, there's, whether it's craft beer bars or micro pubs or, or, or various other initiatives that are happening, 
It was all about rediscovering what the core of the pub is, which is good, good beer and good conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's happening in lots and lots of different ways, and the micropub is one of those ways. Um, my first experience of micropub, I was at a place in... Uh, a place called the Black Dog in Whitstable. There seems to be a load of them around Kent for some reason. I don't, I don't know why Kent is the, is the hothouse of the, of the, of the micropub. But um, I walked in and they were just selling beer. I think they had a couple of bottles. I think they had a house red and a house white and beers and that was all they had. And the guy serving the beers, they were pouring in the cellar and bring them back to the bar. Every single beer he poured, he would hand it over and say, now this one's from a really interesting new brewery in, 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 in Hearn Bay, and it's da 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 well, well, this one's got this really special hop in it uh, that, that comes from Australia. And every single beer, he presented it and told a story to the customer. Yeah. And, and I was standing by the bar just quietly making notes. <laughs> and, um, and then someone came up and said, all right, Jeff, what are you doing that side of the bar? He goes, oh... Anthony owns it, he's ill, uh, so I'm just filling in for him. <laughs> he, wasn't even, he wasn't even his pub. He was, just, he was just a customer. He was just a customer who's gone behind the bar in order to open it. And, and there is your spirit. There is your enthusiasm and your passion that, that is going to keep pubs alive. So I think micropubs will... I hadn't really paid much attention to them before I went into this one, and then I started reading up, and I, I think it's a really exciting development. Yeah. I, I did an event down at one called The Anchored in Worthing, which is... Which is run by a former, former merchant seaman. So it's called The Anchored in Worthing. It's a lovely, if, if you want to go to a great, I, I, I don't know whether you've been to that one personally, but, but that is a lovely little micropub in Worthing. And it's well worth a visit. And also, weirdly, uh, a rush of micropubs in Eltham. Okay. <laughs> yeah, who knew? Um, so to round off, all three of you, if you could recommend one drink that everyone should go out and try as soon as possible, what would it be? <laughs> okay, I'm going to take this one. We'll give you some time. I'm going to take this one straight off the bat. Um, if you can, it's very difficult to get hold of in the UK, but I just tried something that I thought was utterly unique. Um, it's a Brazilian spirit. It's called uh, tequera, so it's basically like tequila, but spelt with, with an R, um, and it's made from cassava. And if you've ever been to South America, you'll know that, well, Mantioc, uh, they know, you'll know that they make shed load of stuff and particularly in Brazil they've got this kind of weird sprinkly thing they put over everything um, basically because cassava will grow everywhere and you can make food from it and you can make flour from it and you can make spirits from it and it's got this really unique kind of fino, sake, um, lactic beery note it's really really good it's also 40% and deceptive and will blow your fucking head off if you don't pay attention to it so um, it also makes quite a good uh, caipirinha as well with custard apple. Dry martini, rangpur gin, um, for Christ's sake, stir it, don't shake it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying not to do one of those really annoying ones where it's like, oh, you got to fly to Seattle. Um, <laughs> well, I basically um, just told really you to fly helped. to Rio, so, yeah. you know. No, I would, say, um, I, I, would, I would say, uh, I think the last, the last piece of journalism I wrote, um, go... Don't go to Seattle, go to Bamberg in, in Germany and go to one of the 500-year-old breweries in Bamberg and um, have a Helles, which is a, a boring mainstream standard lager and prepare to have your world rocked. If you think lager's boring, fizzy, Euro piss, have a Helles lager in Bamberg and go, oh my God, that is one of the best beer experiences It's either, ever. or I'm just going to caveat this with this because Pete and I were on a press trip together when we both first tried unfiltered, unpasteurised beer for the lager for the first time 
in the cellars of the Budvar Brewery. Budweiser Budvar. Just Budvar. And I'm pretty sure there's still our nail marks on the floor <laughs> where they had to drag us out by our ankles. So, you know, that's, that's well worth doing as well. <laughs> right, well, we are slightly over. Sorry about that. Um, as I said, the bar is open till 10. Books are on sale at the back. Uh, if you are interested in pubs, and if you're not, why are you here? Uh, <laughs> Londonist has been, we've been sacrificing our time. It's been really hard going around a lot of what we consider to be the best pubs in London. We've got a database of about 450, 500 by now. The criteria is simply that we like them. Um, so, yeah, have a look. It's londonist.com forward slash pubs. Um, thank you for coming. Yeah. And okay. a big round of applause to our guests. Thank you. Thank you.